everybody, and welcome to the Dot Built Environment podcast with me, Henry Femby Taylor, and me, Neil Thompson. So it's been a long time since our last podcast. Apologies for the uh, radio silence. I think um, covering housing inspired me to move house, which was an interesting journey. Talk about uh, criticizing the process and then having to go through the process myself. So I've learned an, auto, an awful lot. Well, that's uh, that's what this podcast is about, Neil. It's about changing lives, Indeed. even if it's just our lives. That's fine. That'll do. So this podcast is a long one. It's about planning. It's well worth listening to. You know, take take your time to uh, to hear all the parts. We we cover some really interesting things. We talk about just the basic resourcing of planning. What should we do about that? We talk about um, how digital is going to enable the agility of planning and its future. We also cover our favourite architecture, interestingly, in talking about space and its function. And we also tackle the the debate that we always seem to come back to, Henry, the what is digital infrastructure? Is it the ideas that go through the wires or is it the wires themselves? It's the wires. It's the wires. <laughs> so do you want to go, th- do you want to introduce okay. our, uh, our, our, the people that we interviewed? Yeah. Okay. So we are speaking to Ewan Mills and Anthony Slumbers. Ewan is the Urban Futures team lead at the Future Cities Catapult. He is passionate about planning. A very, very passionate guy. So interesting to hear about what he's up to. I mean, it's his job to transform planning, which is fascinating. And talk about the best guy in the best job. Yeah, I mean, if you follow him on Twitter, you'll know this guy is passionate about change. Uh, he's the digital planning revolutionary. If Indeed. there was one, it's him. And do follow at Ewan Mills. Uh, and if you have problems spelling it, yeah, I was going to say, if you have problems spelling it, it is E-U-A-N. But uh, he's such a big deal that Google will autocorrect it for you. We also spoke to Anthony Slumbers. Uh, he's co-founder of Prop AI and uh, is an interesting chap. He's a guy that is consults on uh, real estate and the application of software and technology, which is, uh, it has a very broad and fascinating insight into you know, the usage of space. Uh, one of the things that he focuses on is a thing called uh, space as a service, which is interesting. And uh, somebody that was uh, comes from a, a background of um, an art dealer, did he say? Yeah, he's a former art dealer. And that kind of rounded experience really made me warm to the guy. I really liked his breadth of experience and knowledge. It was really interesting. I learned a lot from him. Yeah, and we get some really passionate outbursts about the role of the built environment, the role of the government, the role of local government, and the role of big technology firms. I think, I know it's taken a while for this one to come out, but it's actually, uh, I think it's a better time for us to be discussing this because there's elements of, you know, how we use personal data and who should be holding it and using it. So we cover those subjects as well. So let's jump in and enjoy. All right, let's go. A small note that I'd like to make for the listeners is that this podcast was recorded in a glass box. That is terrible news for somebody that's recording something with microphones because it causes lots of echoes. So please forgive the quality. Hello, I'm Anthony Slumbers. I've been developing uh, online software and services for Polygon over over 20 years with a particular um, bent towards the commercial real estate sector. 
Um, nowadays, I mainly consult with companies and individuals on the impact of technology across the built environment in totality. Excellent. Uh, so my name is Jim Mills. I uh, am the planning and urban design lead at the Future Cities Catapult. Uh, together with my colleague Steph, we lead the uh, uh, Future Planning Programme, and where we're looking at the opportunities for uh, the new technology presented that we plan in cities. Uh, before this, I spent six years working uh, at the Greater London Authority as a uh, previous mayor's design advisor. And yeah, I've got a, I'm an architect by background. Are you reading your CV online? No, I'm not actually. You're not reading. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so this forms a part of our housing series. Uh, we recently went to go and see Josh Ryan Collins at the New Economics Foundation um, to discuss his book which was a really interesting conversation and we learned a lot and it's sparked a bit of an interest in kind of housing policy and digital. So it seems that now we've kind of got the context of, of housing and planning in the UK that we can kind of maybe move forwards and uh, discuss where it is and where it's going in the future. And so it seems very natural to have um, somebody who's coming at it, say, from the client side, inverted comments, if the client side were the government. So someone coming at it from the government side and then someone coming at it from the solution side, from the commercial side. So uh, sometimes it feels a bit like there's been a bit of a chasm between those two worlds and they don't talk as much as either side would perhaps like, um, unless it's adversarially. Okay, so it's clear that there is a technological impact happening around the world. It's impacting a number of different industries, and we've seen that with you know, media and, say, taxis is the other kind of the go-to examples. But it's happening everywhere. It's happening in real estate. There are different models emerging. There are different ways of using property that don't necessarily fit comfortably into our existing understanding um, of of say housing. Um, so with these changes that are coming and are happening now in terms of changes of use, technology and how people use space, how should the government respond to that in terms of, of planning and the use of space? I think, uh, I mean, uh, I think you're absolutely right. If you actually have a look at planning construction, kind of recent kind of McKinsey studies on the digitization of different sectors, planning construction is actually the second last uh, second last only to agriculture. So uh, you get things like Pokemon Go, which is not quite kind of agriculture. Uh, sorry, it's agriculture and hunting. Oh, agriculture okay. and hunting, the second which I was going to say, agriculture has sat-nav uh, tractors, doesn't it? You know, we don't. We do have those. So, so uh, 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 the, 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 thing, the, the thing with planning is that uh, planning is very much kind of uh, a relic of, of kind of a, a previous era. It's a, it's a quasi-judicial system. Uh, we're still working with things like uh, uh, use class orders, where, where, where uh, different uses are classified between your A1s, your A2s, your B1s, D1s, etc. Could you give us a little bit more on what those classifications are and what their purpose is? Uh, Without giving us a boring list. Yeah, I don't know the history of, of use class orders. I should okay. have been useful. I was actually just trying to look them up. But it is things like, for example, uh, a shop falls within class A1. Uh, professional services uh, are class A2. So, for example, everything from estate, an estate agent to a bank you fall within uh, uh, class A2. Uh, if it's a, a, a restaurant, uh, uh, you probably fall within class A3. 
so, 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 so kind of uh, all the A classes tend to be kind of uh, retail, high street, high street uses. Then you have uh, C classes, which are your 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 living uh, classes. Everything from hotels to hostels to to, to houses. So traditional housing is falls into class C three. Uh, so, so, so kind of uh, the way the planning system works, it kind of uh, from this base of actually kind of uh, segmenting uh, or grouping lots of different uses within these. That's where we then start writing policies in response to that. So, for example, something within uh, use class C three. Uh, if it's more than 15 units, you have to provide affordable housing. Uh, in places like London, you might have to provide 35% affordable housing if you're building C3. But then the, what, what is happening, which is really interesting right now, is what is the definition of C3? And particularly when we're seeing kind of this big shift in the real estate uh, market, as kind of, and, and kind of we'll talk about, uh, uh, is that we are, we've got new uses, new programs. And, but we're still using this kind of quite uh, uh, old way of actually trying to understand these things. That, that, that's the big problem, isn't it? Because really we've got a system which is, it puts everything into silos. You are this or you are that, or you are this or you are that. And it comes back to the, the, the fundamental problem, I think, is that the way we are all using the built environment across the board is changing fundamentally in the sense the way we are using offices is changing completely. The way we are using shops, and actually the same is going to apply to the way we are using residential, is all going to change. And in fact, they're all actually blending in into one thing. There's this big talk about, oh, you know, I've, I need to I need to manage my my live work balance. But balance is such a ter- terrible way of looking at it. It's much more of a blend now, and that's the problem. So you might have a co-working centre that turns into a restaurant in the evening. Well, what is it? What is it then? You might have um, an apartment that doubles as an office during during the day, or you might have a, a block which has apartments at top and, and a co-working space da- down the bottom, and you have all these different mixes because they all have to cater for the, as I say, the way we want to use all our spaces changes now. So the big problem could be is if we en- end up with a planning system that is actually designed for an analog world as we're moving into a digital world and then it becomes not fit for purpose. Wow, that is one hell of a soundbite right there. I like it. So the interesting thing for me is thinking about, and this might sound a bit strange, but accounting. Yeah, accounting. Accounting. You say, why are we thinking about accounting? And it's because accounting cycles happen yearly. Traditionally, because it took time. There's a transaction cost to collect that information and do something with it. Do you think it's the same thing with planning? Planning was structured in a way where you needed to collect information about a space over time, and it's taken time to collect that. The outturn strategy around planning has taken years to come about, but we're moving into this world where it could be measured instantaneously. And does that change things? Absolutely. And uh, so, 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 I mean, today it takes, if you're lucky, it takes about four years to write a local plan. Local planning, the policies that you use to kind of uh, to, 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 to control development in terms of development. Uh, in that time, a lot of things happen. Uh, new, new, new ways of new types of housings that uh, come about. New types of businesses start existing, uh, and everything changes. So usually, by the time these plans are published, they're out of date. 
So the system is obviously broken. Something isn't working. And our hunch is that through digitization and through a much more agile uh, policy-making uh, process, we can actually start addressing a lot of the issues, a lot of the barriers that, that, that are, uh, are emerging from this. So uh, recently, planning has been seen as kind of the, one of the big barriers to development. And, 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 and it's kind of, people say the planning system is broken. And what we often say is the planning system isn't actually broken, just needs upgrading. It's just out of date. The, way, the ways we do things are still very, very slow. They're analog, uh, things take a lot of time, and they're very, very imprecise. And if you have a look at where we are with, with technology in general, I mean, we have incredibly smart computers, incredibly, lots and lots of data about the city. Uh, in theory, we should be able to start kind of applying some of these technologies to how we plan cities to actually make, to make it a lot more agile, a lot more inclusive, uh, and basically kind of a, a, a data-rich planning system. But, but that, also, that also means the, 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 other, the other side, side of that is that the way, the way we dis design and construct our, our built environment need, needs, needs to change. Fundamentally, it needs to be flexible. Because the, the, the point is, you know, I come from a, a soft, software back, background. In, in software, I know what the software is going to be like in the next year, and I can probably tell you what it's going to be like in the two years. Can I tell you what it's going to be like in five years? I don't have a clue. It changes. It changes all the time. And the whole process of working in the software is an iterative thing. And that is actually rolling over into the built environment now. So our spaces need to be designed for flexibility. And then from the planning side, that needs to be working from, if you like, ev ev evidence-led planning. So we, we have flexible spaces that talk back to us, and they talk back to us through technology, to, through, the, through the sensors and analytics. So we actually understand how does this apartment work? How does this office block work? How does this neighborhood work? How does this city work? And the city has to talk back to us in, in real time, and then you can adjust planning, planning them. Uh, planning policy to suit the reality of how people live because one, one of the big things you always have to remember people will, will tell you they want to do one thing but never listen to that watch what they actually do because what people do is always different from what they say so it's a it's it's flexible it's responsive and it has to work very much together so both sides it's not just that I, I really get quite annoyed with this the, from the real estate side to say all oh, planning is broken. It, it largely is not broken. A lot of development is, is broken. Both sides need to realise actually they are both quite analog industries and both sides need to bring themselves up, up, up to date so that they can work much better together. I think we're in danger of agreeing with each other. I think we're in danger of agreeing with each other rather violently um, which is never a good thing. So I'm going to throw a grenade in. Um, so the options that we have, there seems to be a spectrum of planning legislation from kind of a highly um, centrally managed system where specific layouts and arrangements of buildings is defined um, on the one hand and the other end is massive laissez-faire. So I, um, from the book by Josh Ryan Collins, I, I saw in their graph that everyone's um, housing prices compared to income was increasing in every country except Japan. And by every country, I mean every developed country. Um, so I thought to myself, well, why is this? Um, so they had a bubble in the 1980s. And what seemed to have happened um, was you know, the usual property bubble system happened. And then immediately afterwards, they, they revolutionized how they looked at 
um, at planning and giving planning permission. So there is no such thing as compulsory purchase in Japan, um, which is one of, you know, we see that as a key tool to you know, push development through and make development happen. But yeah, they, uh, in Tokyo in 2014, there are 140,000 um, new builds started, whereas there are 130,000 started in the UK in the same period. The, the difference in Tokyo, though, is you can build anything you want. You can build anything. <laughs> well, and that's exactly the point, because it's a cultural decision that they've made is that would we want to live in that world? And I don't think we would. We wouldn't want to live on that extreme where the the views aren't controlled and the landscape isn't protected. And that caveat, this is me putting on my landscape architecture hat again as we drink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is the drink. But, 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 but the reality is that there's plenty, there's plenty of plenty of space space to build. We don't need to go and desecrate everything that's beautiful to be able to build build it up. There's stuff to be built in everywhere. One of the big changes I think is going to happen. If you sort of think think through the I don't know if it is absolute logic, but it seems logic to me. As particularly in the UK, London, you know, the UK only has one main major city. We're not like Germany where you can be Berlin, Dublin, uh, uh, Frankfurt. Munich, Frank, Frankfurt, Hamburg, etc. But you have London and, and it's overcooked and it's over expensive. And that's frankly an absolute bugger for anyone who's coming coming in from, from the bottom. As a Yorkshireman, this is, uh, well, I'm, not, I'm, I'm an adopted Yorkshireman. Uh, as an adopted Yorkshireman, um, we seem to keep coming around to this conversation. There are two separate conversations being had, and one is the London problem, and then the debate outside of London is to- seems but, to be totally but, separate. Uh, uh, I mean, the London problem is uh, the big city problem. Hmm. Uh, London, London grows by just, just under 300 people per day. That includes Sundays and bank holidays. Uh, people are, are How inconsiderate of them. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and, and that will invariably put a pressure on housing and, and, and land and, and in real estate. And I think that's kind of, I mean, that's, that, that's something that, that's not going to change. Mm-hmm. And, and there is, on one level, there's a debate on should, should London planners or should this, planners of these big cities try and accommodate this growth? And I think the view of London is, yes, we should, but let's try and figure out how to make the most of it whilst accommodating that growth. Uh, so I, th- I think that's an important kind of a, a starting point. Okay. But we also have a vast number of people commuting and out of the, the city every day. And I, I, think that the, I think the notion of commuting in and out of the city five days, five days a week, A, a, is, a, a is a nonsense. B should stop and C, C will, will stop because I'm going to move, move over to the sort of office market at the, at the moment. If you, if you think what are offices used for at the moment, well, you don't need to go to the office to do your work in the, anymore and you don't, need, like, you don't need to go to a shop to go shopping anymore. So the office has to sort of reinvent itself for what is it going to be used for in, in, a, world where, in a world where the robots are going to do what the robots do. Offices are going to change into places where people come to congregate to do the human things. And the, the, where, where you do the collaboration, where you do the design, the in, innovation, the empathy, and the value propositions, and the 
business design and, and all that sort of thing, but you don't do that five, five days a week. So one big help would be starting to think of, I don't know how many millions of people it is that comes into the, 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 the city every day, but say let's aim to half that number. And you could half that number by making sure people have the, the, the equipment, the services, the resources, and the, the appropriate built environment where they live so that they can work adequately, well not adequately, as well as if, if, they, came, if they came into work. That alone would reduce a great deal of pressure. And we're coming back to the infrastructure question because we were looking at this early on. A lot of the people at Dog Built Environment work from home a couple of days a week, sometimes more. Um, and as a group of people working in different companies, our capacity to do that depends massively on where you live. So we have um, friends in Wales whose ability to work from home is negligible because they have very poor infrastructure, digital infrastructure. There are parts of Yorkshire and parts of the north that have really quite uh, appalling um, digital infrastructure. And you, you can see this. I mean, we're talking about access to, commun- to digital communications. That is what would be one of the key enablers for people to work from home more. Um, and you just have to take a train in this country to realize how poor that, that connectivity is when your reception goes through the roof and then disappears almost without reason, simultaneously. What's going on? But, uh, I mean, I, th- I, think, I think we have to take that, that view with a pinch of salt because, I mean, I'm, I, think, I think the extent to which people are working from home and the extent to which uh, 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 people want to be working from home, uh, I'm not sure if that, I mean, if that actually is something... Do you think it's a kind of, it's a planning or infrastructure wishful thinking because it would be very nice for infrastructure growth if everyone started working from home because then we wouldn't have to grow I mean, it, 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 it's definitely, so, so it's kind of like some of the kind of the, the, the thinking with regards to big cities is actually okay, to what extent can we start uh, densifying the suburbs? Uh, and to do that, yes, you need to provide some infrastructure for work, but I don't think it's an either-or. I, I, it's not either you work from, from the city centre or you work from uh, from your local neighbourhood. I think it's both. Mm. And I think that, will that relieve some of the pressure in the city centre? Maybe. I'm not sure. Uh, but I think what we're seeing is just the, kind of the, the general fluidity uh, uh, of the use of space. I think that's definitely changing the way that we're using cities. Mm. Uh, but I think, meanwhile, the planning system is still they're working the way it's always worked and trying to make decisions based on kind of what's, what is mostly kind of not quite outdated, but what, it is outdated methodologies and outdated assumptions. Uh, I mean, our census, for example, uh, we still, in terms of population demographics, we still rely on a census, which is done once every 10 years. Uh, I mean, if you, if you think about the amount of data and the, the, the potential of live data that we have nowadays and actually look at some of the big assumptions that, that kind of, uh, the planning system relies on and the big kind of uh, uh, sources of data, I mean, we, we, we still, digitizing the planning system uh, is still quite a long, the, 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 there's still quite a long way to go with, with regards to digitizing the planning system. 
we're not quite there yet. And I think what we will have to try and do is try to take small steps. Mm -hmm. The idea that at one point, yes, we'll be able to have live data from the city and kind of uh, change our plans and policies to accommodate all sorts of new ways of living and working, uh, I think that's great. But I think there's still local authorities that are, that are manually collecting data in forms and scanning them in and printing them out and signing them and then scanning them in and printing them out. You know, I think we're still quite a, quite a, quite a long way from, from this ideal planning world. So there you go, there's another tension between kind of national government and localism, where we have uh, decisions are being made on a local basis, which means you could argue that they are more fit for that local area because they are being made in that context. I think that is more or less the argument. Um, whereas it will be a lot simpler and more efficient, inverted commas, if a planning system was uh, rationalized, aka simplified, and it was applicable across the country. Again, I'm, yeah. I've just been learning about the Japanese system. So for me, that's what I'm going to be gushing about. But I personally wouldn't want that system. Is it not just a question? Well, I say just a question. I don't want to oversimplify it, but... Oh, oversimplify. It's the question of power and where that power sits. So at this moment, when I want to say power, I mean powers to make decisions about um, outside there's a park. Who has the governance to say what that's next? Is that going to be a block of flats? Is that going to be X, Y, Z? Is that protected? Is it protected? And who makes that decision where that... What yeah. is that democracy? So is it going to be what you guys are touching on is another interesting area, which is as well as the built environment slowly being transformed by digital, governance is also being transformed by digital, and the way the cities are governed are also changing. So you see things like crowdfunding and uh, participatory budgeting as kind of big emerging trends, which are actually changing the dynamics of governance uh, and, and ownership and who controls what. Uh, you see things uh, 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 on the planning side, like neighborhood planning, again, changing that as well. So there's definitely a localization of decision-making, which, which is probably a good thing. I think the idea that uh, we can actually try and, uh, at the same time, create some form of national uh, uh, framework for that, which I think is what you're suggesting. I'm not suggesting anything. I'm bouncing ideas around. I think it's really good to, to kind of mull these things over. Uh, one of the great uh, examples, I see technology as ambivalent. I think it's... it's, it's I think we have to be. I think we have to be very. We have to be. I think we have to be very careful with this idea of technology being ambivalent and immoral, mm. uh, and particularly in, the, in in what we're seeing now in artificial intelligence. Yes. For example, biases, oh. uh, gender biases, are something that we're starting to notice. If you look at Google Translate and you translate from a from a language which is gender neutral, uh, 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 the nurse ends up being female in English mm. uh, and the doctor ends up being male in, in, uh, in English from a, from a supposedly neutral I am, uh, I am not touching but, gender politics with a barge <laughs> that, that, that is actually a really important point what I meant by, by amoral is technology itself is amoral it's just neutral it's what you know AI. AI could be the most fantastic thing that's ever happened to humanity, but it generally could 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 be the, the worst. It's very unlikely actually to sit right right in the middle because one way or another we have got to look at how how we shape it 
point to be our servant, not, not our master. The, bi- the bias thing is really important. So, well, the example I always roll out, I roll it out a lot, is um, the recent London riots where it was organized over social media um, and everyone pointed to social media and look at this great evil that we've released upon the world. And then the next day, the cleanup was organized on social media and as spontaneously as the rioting, erupted and moved so too did the cleanup operation that's why from my kind of ambivalence perspective it is a tool for moral agents both immoral and moral but, but, but either way the, the point is that the technology is actually changing behavior mm. this thing of you know just behavior leads to different technology or does technology lead to different behavior the technology leads to different behavior simply because we have the capabilities to do different things and then what you don't know is how people are actually going to, going to use them but if we think back to thinking back to use classes and whatever if you think of the efforts that's been put in over the last few years to save our high street government has, has done loads of things it's been all, all over the place save our high street the point is that we have far too many we have far too many shops and most high streets actually should not be retail only places if we started thinking of our the center of our cities and, and the high streets as it has some retail it has some food it has beverages it has a library it has a co-working center it has a bit of office it has a bit of residential thinking right back to you know the um the italians had it had it right in the renaissance or the way they ran ran their ran their cities oh this is new to me i want to learn something well the the, you know the the whole point is the you know you had the the center of the city you know multiple uses so you'd have michelangelo working on under (laughs) underneath someone's uh, house but that that's exactly the point about moving things out of a silo and, and blending it in the in the same way that you go to a shopping centre now, I don't know if you know, but most of the big shopping centres now are 25-30% non-shops, mm. which is a huge chunk, and they're probably going to get more and more, more like, like that. I mean, the shopping centres that have... What's a non-shop? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a restaurant. Something, it's like a, something that's not a shop now. Yeah, it, not, not, <laughs> not a, conven- not a convention, it, it conventional... Sure. And, you know, if you start to think of this, this thing about sort of using the, the whole city in a, in a different way, that I might work in the city, I might work over in King's Cross, I might work in any number of places, but the city has to be responsive enough to allow me to do what I want to do where, where I want, want to do it. So that's, we're kind of, we keep coming around to people and the decisions that they make. So democratization is a horrific word that I hate, um, but it covers a lot of interesting concepts about the decisions to use spaces in a certain way. So we are coming at it from multiple angles in terms of how I use a park bench is not defined in a planning law, and obviously not. That would be absolutely ludicrous. Well, 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 it's not defined in the planning law, but you might have a bylaw that says you're not allowed to drink in that park bench. Exactly. So it is. And I think we've got to remember that the reason the planning system is there is to actually protect public interest, where there is a conflict of private interests. So that's the whole point of having a, a, a planning system. So the, plan, the reason the planning system is there is to stop uh, 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 someone who might be burning rubber and producing very, very harmful uh, fuels from actually starting to, to do that particular trade uh, underneath a shop, uh, or, sorry, underneath uh, 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 a residence where there might be elderly or kind of uh, uh, particularly vulnerable people. That's the reason the planning system is there. So it does need to be there and does need to intervene in people's decisions. So I think, I think uh, 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 the planning system, uh, uh, the interesting struggle which is now, which is happening 
now is with with space being so fluid and and the use of space being so fluid, uh, the planning system is struggling to keep track and keep control of that. Now there is a role for it; it does need to keep control of it. The extent, the amount of control is is arguable. Uh, so we need to find new ways in which a planning system can actually control what is happening uh, in space, uh, and and it's not. The planning permission which is given now, which only gets built out in two, three years time, and by the time that gets built out, what is actually built out is very different to what the planning permission was given. And then for us to understand what actually happened, what was actually built, we need to do a monitoring exercise, and the whole process takes four to five years. Mm. But I think we need to actually throw an awful lot more resources at, at, at planning. If you, if you think of it, the, everything that anyone does throughout the day is dependent upon the built environment, the, the space ar ar around them. So it's almost the most important area of, of government is, a, is actually planning. And it's often terribly un under-resourced and not given enough, uh, enough capabilities to, to use the, the, brain, the brain power that is in the, the, the plan planning world and also to attract new uh, brain power. You know, planning, um, as you said, plan, planning should be a really good thing. You know, everyone always goes on about, um, I've forgotten the name of the chap who wanted to bulldoze and build um, Moses, Moses in, in, in New York. And everyone goes, oh, well, thank God for Jane Jacobs. She, she stops all. Now, if Jane Jacobs ran the planning department, everyone would be going, oh, isn't planning fantastic? It's a matter of the quality of people and services that they're capable of, of, of building because a great built environment needs somebody to plan it. And it would be really, really helpful if there was enough capability within planning departments to be able to give it their best. And not only capability, but also data. Yeah, so we talk about us being an age of big data, right? We talk about the 2.9 million emails we send every second, uh, the 20 hours of video we upload to YouTube every minute, etc. He's reading this off the internet, don't be too. But, but, <laughs> but, 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 but the thing is, if you actually uh, try and understand, uh, if we actually realize how little data we have about the city, it's amazing. Uh, my local high street uh, in Hackney, uh, there's 82 shops there. Uh, the number of vacant shops, or the number of restaurants, or the number of uh, hairdressers, that data doesn't exist. Not even the local authority will know exactly where that, where, uh, what these figures are. Mm. So, but, uh, funnily enough, Google will have excellent ratings on which is the best coffee shop because it was crowdsourced. Exactly. So, so but on the other hand, you might have uh, the Google Places API, which probably has a, a very good historical map of that high street and actually knows more than anyone else does how the high street has been changing, what the current trends are, etc. Meanwhile, the planning system is there, kind of lots of kind of papers and, and kind of handwritten. Uh, notes and trying to figure out what, whether whether to allow uh, a change of use from uh, a from a one to a two. But do you think local authorities and this might be strongly worded? But do you think local authorities have? Um, What's that? It's going to be rude. Well, it's, it, it, have they neglected their moral obligation no. to know that? Are they supposed to have collected that data? Are they supposed to know? Are we are we supposed to rely on local authorities to? have that information because Google will have it and Google will sell it to whoever. It's in their commercial interest for, for Google to collect that data. What but it's in the commercial what? interest of but local is, authorities. Yeah, uh, 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 absolutely. I, I, think, I think local authorities do have a duty to collect uh, more data, to collect better data, more timely data and uh, more useful data. 
but they can't. They're, they're they're not they're not resourced enough to do it. They don't have, currently have the skills to do it. And I think we will hopefully we're going to be seeing a shift over the next five to ten years where every local authority has got a data science department, has got uh, uh, people who look into Which, things and uh, etc. Which and, is a really interesting thing because it comes down to this argument that I find fascinating. It's about who pays for the investment in digitization. Is it government gets a massive pot of money and throws it everywhere? Is it we're going to go to the people that live in that local authority and say we're going to add on 5% to your council tax bills and that pays for digitization? Where is that going to come Absolutely. from? Digital is infrastructure. Digital is infrastructure. In the same way as we treat, we treat roads and schools and hospitals as infrastructure, the digital information is also part of that infrastructure. And I think we need to fund it in exactly the same way. And critically, who owns that data and who owns that digital infrastructure is very, very important. So we can't rely on the Siemens and the Googles and the IBMs to provide us with a digital, with a public digital infrastructure that we need. In the same way as we can't rely on them to provide us with the schools uh, and with the hospitals. So we need a, we need, we need a kind of a, a, a mind shift in, with, with, with how we see digital. Mm. It's not something that, it's not a luxury that the private sector is providing us. And isn't it great to be able to have the all the reviews uh, uh, on, on, on a particular cafe that Google provides. Yes, it is great, but the but public sector has a duty to collect kind of better data and things mm. like that. To, to know but, but, but the government also also really has a, has a duty to think of societal benefit from expenditure. You know, what, what would be the... You know, I can't understand you just talking about this uh, bad, bad broadband in various places, parts of the country. I, I think it's absolutely insane why we haven't spent however many billions it needs to put fibre across the whole country. It's just beyond me because the ROI would be, would be extra, extra, extraordinary as opposed to the ROI of spending 100 billion on some stupid train to go to, go to Birmingham. It's, it's, go to the NEC as well. It's, a, it's, a, <laughs> it's an absolute nonsense. But but the, the point is, a, there is such a difference in in the benefit to people using a space that is well designed, well featured, well provided with with services to one that isn't. That for to to invest more money in producing a great built environment across the board has so much societal benefit that the the numbers really would not be the, that material. And uh, uh, I mean, on, on this aspect of resourcing and who pays for it, uh, I think digitization tends to nearly pay for itself, or at least some of the, some of the, some of the examples of the projects that we've been working on. Uh, we've been working with Southern Council and uh, WikiHouse uh, on coming up with a, with a piece of software which uh, 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 screens household planning permissions and makes a decision, or at least suggests what the decision should be, to the, the human uh, planning officer. So today it takes about four hours per per case for a planning officer to look through all through all the uh, all the all the uh, uh, all the information and make a decision on whether 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 uh, a planning permission uh, should be allowed or not. Uh, it, they they do this about there's about eight hundred different applications in a whole year. Half of them are turned down for reasons which really don't need to be turned down. But even those half, 
they've still always have had a human spending four hours looking at them and trying to make that decision. So this project that we've been working with, uh, uh, Southwark and WikiHouse, looks at actually. So what happens if we had a if we had a, a piece of a, a machine learning which actually looks at all these applications and and can give you some advice on whether your application is likely to be approved or not approved? If we can just half the number of applications which gets rejected, we'll have a huge. Uh, 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 savings on, on, on local authority resources. This sounds so. like um, an extension of Do Not Pay. Do you know Do Not Pay? No. No, it's the um, the English kid in he's in America. He's at American some, now. He's American now, um, and he wrote a bot that um, you can try and get out of your parking fine with, and it's ah. sourced on a ton of different information, and you basically feed it your. Uh, reason or excuse, depending on which side of this particular fence you're on, um, and having lots of data just enabled and enables the bot to very simply tell you whether or not you're going to get a whether you, you can appeal your parking fine and gives you the right text for the it. The big difference is that the beneficiaries is the individual who yeah, parked it's illegally. It's like the opposite almost. But, but, but in this particular case, the beneficiary is a local authority which is ready on the resource and should be spending the resources on proactive planning and considering all the, the new use classes and the, and the new the new technologies that, uh, uh, that, are, that are rapidly coming. But there's, coming but there's great consumer service to, to that as well because that would say that the, the local authority a great deal of time, but if I was doing it, it helps me a lot. If I'm filling in this application and when I submit it, it says, oops, Anthony, you did this wrong, you did that wrong, you need to, this piece of information, that piece of information, it saved me a great deal of time. Mm. So the, 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 it's a it's a double it's a double side, sided benefit. But if you if you think of, if you if you think that the, the basic point now is that a computer can see as well as you, it can hear as well as you, and it can read as well as you. Start using those three things that the computer could do to pre-scan things. I mean, in the, in the insurance sector. This happens all the time. I mean, there's loads of systems within the insurance sector that will just approve approve a payment or not approve a payment automatically because it filters out that I don't know seventy percent of the time. It's just yes, pay. Mm. But all the the humans don't need to go through that seventy percent. They just need to be alerted to to thirty percent of time. So the benefit is. Both sides. Now, now, this doesn't mean we get rid of humans, because because these decisions are uh, the planning system in the UK is discretionary, and you always have to weigh up different policies. So that's is, it's an interesting point then, because you, we we have planning officers, but also ultimately, who makes the planning decision in the UK? The planning officers. No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yes, and, 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 and I guess this comes back to this idea of governance. Uh, at the minute, today, the way the planning system works is you have the equivalent of a of a random jury or your local councillors, which tend to be relatively uninformed of the planning system and what is the best type of building environment to be built to be to be uh, uh, approving, and, and that doesn't always tend to be the right answer. I think the danger with this automated planning system is um, partially. Partially automated. Let's just roll forward for an automated one. Is the <laughs> okay? It's it's um, what does it produce? What happens when you know somebody comes up with a fundamentally different idea and no, no, the no, machine no, system no, says no, no, no. no. no but it doesn't. It doesn't. The machine system then would flag, "I don't know the answer to this," and then pass that to the human. So the, the things where the human doesn't really need to think, it's just what yes, yes, no, no, yes, yes. But how would they ever make their decision? So the so the interesting thing. Um, 
uh, reading Tim Harford's book about uh, messiness, and he gave, yeah. gave, gave this example about pil- uh, pilots flying um, fly-by-wire. So the controls are no longer directly connected to the yeah. flaps and what have you. It's, there's a system in between, and the way that you drive isn't directly connected to the experience of your driving. It kind of mediates in between the two. And the same with pilots and coming to points of failure is that despite all the training that they've had because of they've, they've had no human interface with the controls they lose that ability how do we preserve the decision making abilities against it, a good it's, idea it's exactly can, because can, you can expand that a little bit so we're talking about kind of the force feedback of driving of feeling the tires on the road or feeling the wind and the turbulence under your wings, yeah, but, you but, respond and react but, but to that. But think of it the other way. If you're, if you're a planning officer, you've got an eight-hour eight day. At the moment, you might be spending three hours of, of that day doing things which are obvious, mm. but are way below, your, way below your skill level because it's just part of the process you, you have to do. If you can take away all the obvious, so then they like, can spend a out, Have time. you filled out the form fully? Yes, just really well, basic well, well, stuff. No human should ever have to do something like that. So, 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 so uh, my time uh, when I was working as a planning officer in the Great London Authority, I was working as a design officer there, uh, uh, the London plan has got very strong policies on, on unit sizes. Mm. And, and we apply them firmly. 50 square meters, one bedroom flat, that's it. Any smaller, you're going to have to redesign your scheme. And uh, and, and, and so that's great, but then you have a, a scheme which has got 3,000 homes. Do, how do I know whether all 3,000 homes are above 50 square meters? Do I have to go through them? You should totally print them out and get a ruler. And um, that's exactly what we do. Yeah, I know. That's exactly what we do. We should print them out and get a ruler. Meanwhile, I mean, we, we have technology that could just tell me, actually, these three flats here are north-facing or they're, they're slightly below space standards. Make a decision. Make a make a discretion decision based on on the overall quality of the scheme and whether you want the whole scheme to be redesigned uh, to change that or not. Because the way we're looking at um, going into planning from the construction side very often is we are very much focused on the kind of the functional aspects of, of delivering a product that works for our intended outputs. Whereas one of those intended outputs is. Is it acceptable to the local in to the local population? Well, no. So that's that's it's interesting you said oh, that. This is one of the reasons why I wanted to speak to you two specifically, and that was the conflict between our developers or our land banks, as we said in the previous podcast, mm-hmm. and their commercial interests, and the negotiation that has to happen with local authorities to build local infrastructure alongside the things that make them money against the things that they build that don't make them money. And you know, is that always going to be the case? Is I'm I'm a guy that's got land and I've got to go for that process. Is is that ever going to change in so a digitised system? So should we talk about how that's currently done? So we have section. Yes, that might be useful. Yes. So I'll let you talk about section one. So, well, I'll talk about SIL. Yes, which exactly. Which, which, yeah, which, okay, I, which I think is kind of. I mean, SIL is has been a, a simplification of how we get infrastructure. Uh, and relatively uh, kind of uh, uh, easy to predict. And what does SIL stand for? Community Infrastructure Levy. And what, what, the way that works is per square meter, there's a number of pounds you have to pay towards infrastructure. So the building might have 10,000 square meters, you'll know how much, how much community infrastructure levy you have to pay. That's non-negotiable. So you see that there's a move uh, there towards 
trying to reduce the uncertainty and reduce the amount of negotiation we have, even within a discretionary system, because some things we don't really need to discuss. Uh, you see uh, in London, sorry to be London-centric, but in London, again, there's been a move towards uh, a much stronger line towards 35% affordable housing. That's nearly non-negotiable. Uh, and there's a move towards kind of certainty, towards a more black and white system. Now, the great thing about this is not only does it get more certainty long-term to developers, etc., but it also means that we can start using computers a lot, more, uh, a lot better. Yes, if it is black and white, then it can be black and white. And, and, and some things are. I think the yeah. question always comes down to kind of balancing, uh, yeah, the balance, the balance positives. So now we're, uh, we're still talking about, from that perspective, we're still talking about kind of the top-down view of we have a plan, these are our policies, 35%, and we are then disseminating that system down. How could we come the other way? So we're, we're looking far in the future. We are standing in the future in a world where everything is perfect from a planning perspective. And the people of an area want to have more houses. I'm trying to imagine that world where people don't protest it. So, so you know, I think neighborhood planning was an attempt to try and crowdsource planning policy uh, to a certain extent. My view, having been involved uh, in neighborhood planning before, is it doesn't really work. Because planning policy, as I said, is something which is quasi-legal. To be able to write policies, it's quite difficult. You've got to understand planning law. Uh, it's, it's a really difficult area. There's lots of tiers to it. There's lots you need to know. There's lots of context. And you need to kind of know case law. And yeah, it's technical. And then the other side to it is on the planning decisions. We've, we've discussed, we, we often talk about this idea of Tinder for planning, where you swipe left or swipe right, whether uh, whether you like a building or not. Why and Tinder? When, <laughs> uh, or, and, and whether that is you like it. Yeah, and, 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 and I think uh, I, mean, I think I think crowdsourcing uh, is is a good thing, and we can get a lot of good information. But I don't think we can rely on that for kind of decision making, because again, going back to the kind of fundamental purpose of planning is to resolve uh, 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 conflicts. Conflict, exactly. So and there will always be conflict in communities. So we're talking about a balance between um, there is a a group of people, the community, and they have their requirements that might change from day to day, minute to minute or be very consistent. And there are a group of experts and those two groups of people, the waiting in this decision-making process is kind of the, that's the key, that's the lock that needs to be picked. I think it's even more, I think it's even more complex than that. Ooh, okay. There isn't even such a thing as a community. So I was chair of, 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 of a neighborhood forum for a while and we couldn't decide what policies we should put in our neighborhood plan. Mm. Uh, because even within a supposed community, there's different factions, different opinions, and, and, and there's so much complexity there. Uh, trying to resolve that is practically impossible. What is a community? Don't answer that. There is no answer. Uh, this goes very much back to uh, Adam ruins everything, and there is no such thing as millennials. Millennials are this, millennials are that. And like any classification of human beings, if you dig into it, you go into it deep enough, you'll find that, that it's totally baseless. Basically, we were just millennials, it's young people, and they've been saying the same thing that Older people have been saying the same thing about young thing, young people for hundreds of years. So, um, you know, kids these days don't even know how to clean their clay slates. Their writing skills are, are appalling. It's like a quote from the 1700s. But I'm not going to totally plagiarise that episode. Socrates hated writing. Yes, he did. I was just, and I'm not going to. Let's not tangent too hard. <laughs> I can get really excited down that particular but this avenue. Is, but there's actually all, all of this comes back to. Planning is hard. 
Mm. It's complicated. Cities are buggers. Mm. They're big and they're messy and they're, they're difficult. So how we can possibly expect to end up with a good result without funding it adequately, giving it the resources, giving it the brain... Actually, you're, you're throwing, you've got to throw brain power at this. Mm. And as Stuart said, you know, crowdsourcing can, can, can help you, can pull in lot, lot, lots of ideas, but a bit like referendums are probably not a good way to, to, to run, run the country. I should just say just, nothing. should say nothing. Exactly. <laughs> um, crowdsourcing can only take you so far. It's a guide. You then need a skilled person who has a very broad understanding of all the factors to help get, get to a conclusion. So this is where automation comes in. If we can take those uh, mundane tasks away from these skilled people, we might be able to get more for less. Exactly. Intent. I mean, I don't know if it happens, but uh, do, do people share BIM models with local authorities? No. That doesn't happen. So, for example, we've worked on other projects where we're trying to do that. So, so again, uh, just on a very, very base level, we're trying to see if can we... The information that we're producing to build the built environment, can we at least share that information equally amongst us? Most planners have never even heard of building information models. Mm. Uh, and uh, very few architects even use, use things like GIS and doing a completely different platforms, completely different concepts uh, and very, very different industries. The built environment industry itself is completely fragmented. Now, there are, there are quite a few moves towards trying to get that uh, working together. Uh, but once that's kind of very much on the, on the on the planning and design side, but then one thing which is really missing in the way that we kind of understand cities is the actual understanding bit. Mm. Once we build something, how do we know how it's being used? <laughs> There's very, very little post-occupational research or anything that either, either on offices or residential or, or retail. So there was a, a, a very uh, interesting project that you worked on, Neil, where you simulated, I don't know if you can even talk about this. Yeah, we'll find out. We'll get edit, <laughs> out, edit this out. Uh, where you worked with um, mobile phone data to predict crowds. Yes. Yes, well, I mean, that's, that's not a secret. I mean, mobile phone companies Just checking. collect an awful lot of information about people because they have a series of sensors they have access to and they're your internet service provider. So they not only know where you are and where, and where you've been and where you're going, they also know the context in which you're communicating with the world. And those two things together are very powerful. So, yeah, working with a premiership football team, working out where do people go before and after to optimize traffic management. And I guess it goes back to that original question of why are mobile phone providers being the custodians of that information? Okay, they put the investment into collecting it and providing that infrastructure, but that isn't sitting in a server of a local authority on like an open platform or something like that exactly. because it's and such a wealth of information. The information is already out there. It's already being collected. It's just in the hands of not the wrong people. I don't want to say that, you know, I'm not saying mobile phone companies are evil. I mean, we couldn't survive without them, to be honest, but with the information they've the got... can be utilised in, in, other, in other places. And they're... Yeah. In, 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 it's explicit this, 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 this point about place occupancy service is, is, is absolutely true. People, people build buildings and they say, oh, they're going to operate in some way. And then no one ever checks. No. Which is why so many places are so in, inefficient, because it might just not work the way it's configured. So if you knew, if you knew how it was used, reconfigure it. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it does come, it, 
so much of this comes comes down comes down to the same things, doesn't it? You, you need great people, well trained, well resourced, with pro proper up to the minute real time data and the ability to to act on it. That's that alone is such a huge start. I mean, kind of what we're talking about is, is is trying to learn from the software industry and apply that to the built environment industry. And of course, it's, not, it's never going to be a seamless journey. But I think there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from that. And now we have the technologies to be able to behave a bit more like that. Hence, we talk about an, an agile planning system uh, and things like that. Um, it, it's interesting because there is an interesting analogy um, that I found uh, while hunting around for kind of agile tips from the software industry. And they said that uh, if bridges were designed the way uh, the software was designed, um, there would be three times the amount of reinforcement. There'd be a third of it that no one knows what it does, but if you touch it, the whole thing falls down. <laughs> it's interesting. It goes both ways because they, they, they look to us sometimes. That would, that would be if, if the old Microsoft did it. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, now that hurt. <laughs> but, but, uh, I mean, because then that brings on to the next, the, next, the next thing, which is which ownership and the concept of open source. Uh, I mean, so if it is built like software, but if it's built like open source software, mm -hmm. then it's probably going to be very, very safe. It's probably not going to fall, and everyone understands how it works. And it'll probably work as you you have millions of, of architects and designers working on it, mm -hmm. uh, like you do in, in open source software. So it's interesting, kind of uh, going on from that, coming back as well, in terms of the a lot of the activities that I do online are reinforced or monetized in some very minor way by say Google or whomever um, when I do things for the community they just do little tiny things to kind of raise my profile or I get points it's really minor things like that I'm basically talking about the gamification of my activity online and I think there is already all these big data sets and they're already set up to make themselves better um, why can't we just piggyback off these existing systems and just say well Here's a law. We get to use your data. Thanks. Exactly. So, so for example, we're we're seeing the the, the emergence of kind of a, 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 a driverless cars and, and driverless vehicles. Uh, yes, they should be allowed to use our streets, but all the data they collect should go towards the public sector. Mm -hmm. These are going to be vehicles that are going to be driving around our streets, scanning every single little bit of a, a, a three dimensional, every single three dimensional object uh, on our streets and spaces. That's really good data. Ah, oh, that's such a good idea. Yeah, but then the Daily, oh, yeah. the Daily Mail will turn around and say, oh, the government is setting up policy to scrutinise everyone and yes, run but, but, but the reality is that doing that anyway. <laughs> the data is being collected. And there's a question the of trust now. Exactly. This is the thing. Do you trust Facebook and Google more than you trust your local authority? Apparently, you do, people do. There. <laughs> but apparently people do. I think you're right. I think something is wrong there, but I think that is how people feel. I think it's so, those well, stories of... Uh, USB uh, sticks and CDs being left on trains. The bus have this app, don't they, for doing a pot potholes? Potholes. So you just in, install it. It just works with your one of one of the sensors in 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 your phone as you drive around Boston. Every time it goes a bump, it reports it back. And there's a and you've taken the human out of it entirely. You've haven't taken you? the human. But the point the point is you're you're using technology to raise the bar. You're using technology to make. Everything better for everyone, and then and, and then just carrying on on from there. And what's key about that specific example is that isn't taking the existing system and then sticking a digital face on it. That yeah. is taking the opportunity of a digital system. Well, exactly. That, and that's then, that's then, uh, 
because of new technology, using the functionality in a different different way, you don't want to dig digitize the past. You need to look at how can we how can we source, source data in different ways. And Barcelona is very good at it as well. So Barcelona did this thing and gave out gave out uh, little packs of sensors to hundreds of thousands of people and just said, can you, can you please stick these on your windowsill? And it, and it monitors all the sort of um, air quality That's and water. Because cool. you're trying to, you know, you want, nothing should ever be top down. Top down never works. They've tried, tried it all over the place, top, top down. It needs to be fed fed from the bottom up and you feed it from the bottom up by understanding what, what is happening. And, and, and also that's the way that we should try and try and be innovating in the industry. We don't come up with a single solution that will fix all city, city problems. Uh, quite often we talk about this idea of city information models. So taking a building information model and applying it to, to a city, the same concept. And, and you do have uh, people, again, kind of some, some big corporations that, are, that claim to offer this system. It's all in one system. Here you go, you can understand the digital version of your city. Mentioning no names. Yeah. Uh, and and we, at least at the Catholic, we don't think that's the right way to do it. Okay. We think we have to start small. We have to think about interoperability, uh, everything being open, and that's the way we're going to at least, I mean, we've been trying to build city information models for over 20 years, and we haven't succeeded. It's got exactly the same problem that planning law has, in fact all law, is that if you try and standardise something, by the time you've standardised something, mentioning no standards, no BIM standards at all, not referencing those, um, if by the time you've standardised something, You've moved on from where you were in the same way that when you, by the time you've developed a local plan, things have moved on. So it's more about rather than saying we will all work consistently exactly this way, it's saying we will be open, we will provide you access to what we do. So as we develop, you will have access to our information, mm -hmm. you will be able to work with it. We're not. We're going to do it our way that suits us because how we work is developing and changing. A great, a great example of. Um how, how different technologies can, can lead to different things. It's the, the story of um, City Mapper, you all know, mm -hmm. the, the City Mapper app, mm -hmm. probably my favourite app, favourite app ever. They're starting their own bus service. Are they? Yeah. They're starting oh, right. their own bus service and it's on a bus route that no bus caters for at the moment. And the reason is they have learned from the millions of people using the City Mapper app where people go. Wow. And then they map that against availability and they go oh look there's a there's a gap there now there's no way on earth a human could possibly work that out that can right. only be worked out by huge scale of, of the data and you said oh. but, and, and, and i think this highlights potentially a big problem because here you have city mapper using public sector data from tfl mm -hmm. to provide a new service public service of buses better than the actual public sector so, so the relationship between something like City Mapper and something like TFL is incredibly important because yes, TFL should be opening up their data, but TFL need to make sure that the, the, the data that's collected about the city, they can then use it and they can provide them with the bus services. Uh, very similar to what we're seeing uh, uh, now with the, 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 the emergence of Go Bikes. Uh, again, yeah. again, uh, in relation to, to your I'm not a Londoner. This is a London thing, right? This, yeah, it was, it's kind of it's a, 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 a new bike sharing system, which is actually it's not only London based; it's, it's appearing across the UK, oh, okay. very big in Asia. Uh, uh, and but in, in London, it's competing with the public service, uh, the Santander bikes, which are which are kind of a, a public provision. So, so, so what we're starting to see is you're starting to see uh, kind of. A, a, private sector corporations, usually uh, software-based corporations, moving into the provision of public services better than the public sectors. Mm -hmm. I mean, the 
everyone, everyone talks about Uber, but you know, in some parts of the world, where Uber's turned around and said, or the governments have turned to Uber and said, well, instead of spending that money per head on infrastructure, we'll just give you vouchers for a, a private system. But that's not a good idea because what the public sector is losing, they're losing all the data. So the data, which we keep going back to, which is so important to make decisions about how the city works now and how it's going to work in the future is now in silos in, 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 in big corporations uh, out with the public sector. And we end up being in a situation like we are now where local authorities don't actually understand uh, uh, as much about the, the local place as your Google and your Facebook do. So we're back to, we're back to the silos versus open source debate again. Is, is the right sort of, if there were to be a law on this sort of thing, is the right sort of law not thou shalt comply with this standard, but you should have your information be open and useful. It, 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 it absolutely should be. It should be open. I mean, there's, there's like the, the, the conflict at the, at the moment in the software world. You've got Gavi, you know, Google, Apple, Facebook, Facebook, Amazon, with this extraordinary power, more power than any companies have ever, ever had. But they have complete control on, on, a, on a data level, which is, which is siloed silo to themselves. And that's potentially very... Dangerous. For instance, I, I think what is going to end up happening, and it's probably going to be, um, the Americans probably won't do it, but you, the EU will probably do it. So the, the ability to move your data from one place to another, that doesn't do the new GDPR allow you to move data. So for instance, if you, if you wanted to say, I want to take everything that Facebook knows about me, the complete data, and I want to move that to, to XYZ. That creates a completely different dy dynamic because you've got, you have got to be really careful in, in this sort of digital world because you know network effects are really really powerful and the you know the, the winner takes all is can be a really it can be a really powerful spur to innovation if you think of you know, if you think of the consumer surplus we get we get from Google all these services we use for free and our trade offers we we allow them to to set, set our at but. They control everything. The power, power of Facebook is is extraordinary, and it all in software software network effects revert to putting all the power in a very few nodes, and that can that can be very dangerous. If we if we allow the the, the software industry to completely take take over the city, that's not a good thing. It's a great thing to co-op them in and work with with them, but you, the city really does need to. To be cognizant of the fact that you don't want to end up with, oh, I had all that information, and now someone says, oh, well, in that case, can I have, you know, four pounds a minute? To but centralization and decentralization of, I say stuff, but the, the business cycle and, you know, companies go through these cycles of outsourcing and insourcing, and is that... Is that just the, the building up of monopolies and breaking them down, just a fact of life? And the new monopolies is the software vendors. They will break down to the new monopolies. Well, it, it sounds like an economist right now. It, it, You're breaking it, it, out your economist boots. But if you, everyone does say, you know, no, no monopoly lasts forever. And, and you get to a situation where you, you remember people say, oh, well, Microsoft, are, you know, they rule the world, and, that, and that's the, the end of that. And then, boom, they just sort of fell yeah, off. Yeah, they kind of fell, fell, fell off the cliff. Because, yeah. well, mobile, mobile yeah. killed kill, kill them. You look at all the, all the, all the new Newspapers, Facebook's getting well. It's helping to, to fin finish off um, news newspapers. The, the, the trouble is, most monopolies do get to a certain point. It's the, it's the S curve, isn't it? You know, it gets commoditized, and then something something new new comes on. The, the, the danger is that 
certain companies could be so powerful, there's no way any competition could possibly occur. Because if you think, if you, if you look back at it, when Facebook bought um, WhatsApp, that actually shouldn't have been allowed. At the time, no one thought about it. No one really thought, well, this is going to be so unbelievably powerful to get together. If that happened today, it almost certainly would, wouldn't, wouldn't be allowed. But you also get the thing of anyone new and good and doing something interesting, they have so much money. Boom. Oh yeah, the, often the um, yeah the, the startup business plan is how are we going to get bought in five years? Exactly. So you can, if you're not careful, you could end up with a society where you've broken, you've basically broken capitalism. You know, it should get to a certain point then it destroys itself. You know, hubris and all, and all that. But it could it could go. I could I like I like I like I could see a dotted line hubris <laughs> on that graph. Hubris, hubris. hubris. and then <laughs> Icarus, isn't it? That's the the natural flow. But the the way around it is exactly as as Ewan said, it's open open source software so anyone can play and and, and open open data for all the the data that is has potential to be a common good. This is not saying this is not saying people don't have a right to have their own proprietary data because you know you need proprietary data. That is but all, all these tools. But the underlying thing. It would be like saying someone has control over um, electricity as opposed to electricity. You could just say, well. I've got a building put electricity. No one can say no. You could be taxed for um, rubbing a balloon on your hair. You know, uh, you've generated electricity. Uh, you uh, are you uh, registered? Uh, no, I'm not. Well, so in cuffs. Yeah, <laughs> you've got to sell it back to the grid. I think that's a, that's a really good point. Um, and, and but, but I mean, so critically, a lot of this comes down to this idea of treating te- treating data and digital as infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Uh, da- data and digital is infrastructure. The minute we see it as as something else, as as, as oil. But it's actually infrastructure, and and until we make that shift and treat it as infrastructure, and then and then have a debate to what extent it should be private, to what extent it should be public. Uh, you know, the sooner we get there, the better. Yeah, and so I think we found the uh, the backgrounds of, of of decision areas where uh, where we need to draw those lines. So we need to de- define. Um, where can decisions be made by experts and where should they be automated? And what is that tension with the the local populace or the impacted stakeholders, to use a douchey term? Um, how does that work? And then on the other side of things, we've got um, kind of the economic factor of how do we um, enable basically new economies? There are new economies emerging all the time. How do we enable those and let those people who have developed those reap the benefits while not ending up in a world where these organizations reap all the benefits and society doesn't benefit at all. So then we're talking about where is the open data, open source? Because all these, the gaffer, which I didn't know, by the way, I've learned gaffer, that's a new thing I today. Um, the, they're all built on open data and open source. That's how a lot of a lot of their stuff, as much as they can, is sourced because it's easier and it's cheaper for them. I would say a lot. It's not a lot, but what I'm saying is, is that that the mechanisms are already built into these organisations to use this. It's governments that need to grab these levers and see that they are useful levers, open data, open source, and then lever that um, for the public good. So. Magic wand. If you had a magic wand, 
Or maybe a magic wand's not the right word. A magic policy wand. A magic policy wand. That sounds really dull. I wonder what that would look like. <laughs> no, a lever. It'd be a lever. You know, we're all talking about okay. governments pulling levers. Or one wish. One wish. Here magic we go. Lamp. A magic lamp. A magic okay. lamp. We're going to go magic lamp. A, a magic lamp. That'll never take off. No? <laughs> <laughs> okay, a magic lamp. So your magic lamp, you've got one wish. You can have a lever as well if you want. Local authorities making better use of data. Collecting, storing, and using it. Uh, I think that's the one thing that, if, if I could tomorrow change, is give all local authorities a platform where to store data, some, some basic kind of terms and conditions, terms and references to how to deal with the Facebooks and the Googles in terms of the data, and, and just have someone there to make sure that any new innovation that comes along and starts collecting your data, they start making use of that data as well. Okay, so it's just to get an idea of how that how this wish works. So you'd be kind of educating people, their knowledge would suddenly, they, they'd see more of the world and they'd be empowered to do something about it. But with existing powers. And uh, which comes down to kind of, it's, it's really just, just it's, it's practically all, all this wish is, is a change of state of mind, is actually seeing data as a service, seeing data as a, as a piece of infrastructure. That the public authority has to has to has to own. So it's great. Uh, uh, was it last week? Uh, amazingly, uh, uh, 2017 London World Capacity uh, uh, now has a, a digital uh, uh, technology officer. Or a, or no, is it a, a chief technology? A chief technology. technology yeah, CTM. It's it's amazing that it's taken till now before London actually has one of these. So you've touched on something that we had a little argument about in our first. Podcast was no, about what is infrastructure, oh, yeah. and I said it was about <laughs> one of the things about transmitting things through electricity, through wires. Yes, and you said I if you, if you turn, and if you turned around to Isambard Brunel and said that an idea was infrastructure, he'd probably shoot me. Now I think he still would. I think probably might, but uh, you said data is infrastructure. So I want to: is it the data within itself being transmitted, or is it the Thing that is used for it to be transmitted through. What's the infrastructure? I, I'd say it's both. It has to be both. It has to be both. So it has to be, both. So it has to be uh, the data. The data be money now. Something has to go through it. <laughs> yeah. uh, to have the data, you need to get the data somehow. Uh, uh, knowing how people use a city is critical infrastructure, and that has to be stored somewhere. And that has so to. Live there, there's a critical difference because that's about. That's not about the data. So knowing what three hundred thousand people had for breakfast, okay, that is probably data, useful information to someone. But it's also being able to filter and rationalise and understand it's and interpret. The, the hundreds of thousands of pounds local authorities spend on producing evidence-based uh, documents to back up their policies—that is data in some in some form. It's usually outdated and slightly relevant and not that useful. Uh, so, so I think I, mean, I think the mindset is there. But the minute we don't, we have to do these studies. We do these surveys. We we, we do these kind of questionnaires, etc. But there's mm. there's all this digital data which is really really useful, and we can just bring that in. I guess the bias, because if you think of the amount of bias that's in, you've got to design a survey. The design of that survey has inherent bias, mm. and then the data within it itself, because you've been asked a question, and you know, depending on my mood, am I? Answer in different ways. Let's not forget the data can also be biased and twisted and, and, and used in whatever way. So I don't think data is the answer, but I think data is like is the first step towards towards the answer. And a mindset change towards that. Very interesting. Can we grab that one? Okay. 
Okay, Anthony, I think you're going to get, should we give him a lever or is he going to get a lamp? What would you prefer? Lamp or lever? I'm going to have a great big lever. He's going to have a great big lever. But I'm, I'm now going to go through dramatic, dramatically in, into reverse. Being, being as old as I am, I'm actually some sort of the pre, pre-internet age and actually spent um, spent a decade as an, as an art dealer and did history of art at university. So, That's something. <laughs> so, cool. so, so, so Strangely enough, I, I love all love all this tech, tech stuff, but it's not much use without highly developed design design skills. And I would argue that um, planners were imbued with much greater levels of design awareness and skills, and were allowed to to. Um, to use them a lot more. What I'm really saying is there's an awful lot of buildings that I wish never got built because there's no way they're going to be stopped being, being built but are just plain ugly and awful. And um, William Morris's thing of having nothing in your house is, that is not either beautiful, that is not either useful or you believe to be beautiful should be written city-wide. I did not think we would get a William Morris quote in today. There we go. <laughs> Excellent. Nice. You get a, he pulls the lever and there we go. That happened. Crazy. I feel like I got my own back when uh, Anthony put me on the spot at Rick's about what my favourite architecture was, and yeah, I feel like I got my own back now. You didn't say brutalist, did you? No. What did you? It's a little bit more complicated than that. Oh, you, you I actually gave him. I actually gave him a proper answer much later on via via image. Oh, so, right, okay. It is actually a very interesting thing to ask people. Just ask them what is what is your favourite building, and there's actually not many people who immediately immediately know what it is because most of the time you don't actually think oh what is your what is your favourite building Anthony what is your favourite building probably probably the Pantheon in Rome oh nice choice (laughs) interestingly so so if I can just just go that's one of the most uh, that building's useless now that building has not stood the test of time that building has not been adaptable oh oh, I think then there's fighting important. Because it, 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 doing, it, well, it is a it is, it is a tomb, isn't it? So it's a tomb. It's exactly, it's a tomb. But it's also it's a, it's also a, a, a thing of beauty, which has okay. been, is right. a joy I, I like it. So, you, you, what's your favourite building? So, so yeah, I'm glad you asked because, because <laughs> really? I do have one, and and actually, it is a building which has changed through time. It was actually built in 1960. It's it's a it's a, it was a housing block built in the 60s, uh, which. Uh, during the project, they changed the use and it became an office block. Uh-huh. Uh, they then changed uh, a lot of the offices back into housing, and now it's uh, the housing didn't really work that well, and now it's become uh, 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 artist studios. So you see that it's just since the 1960s, oh, we're, all, which is, we're all scratching which is our heads trying to work out what it is. Different, uh, different uses and so many different versions, but I think that is a good building. So a building that can, can, regardless of technology, regardless of culture, regardless of the economy, it can actually change and not need to be knocked down. So what's the thing? Uh, I shall know what it's called. <sighs> uh, I know it's We're going to have to find that out now. It's got a big graffiti of a robot uh, on the side. I it's like a building it already. I'll, okay. I'll, I'll send you guys a picture. Okay, cool. So for you, it's all about the people. It's all about the people and responding to society. It's two very, very different well, answers. Actually, just, just, just on that, that, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? If you think of, um, I was, I was, I was after, after a photo of a co- of a of a great co-working site a, a few months ago, and I found this one in, I think, I think it's in, in Philadelphia or something like that. But it's an old banking hall, and if you think, if you think of all the banking halls in, in St James's, 
which you would, would turned into wine bars and restaurants. And then you've got one that is then turned back into a co-working space. <laughs> and it's the most extraordinary, yeah. extraordinary place because you know, one of the things I was had, had this idea of the places where you work should be imaginariums because you've got to go there to do human things. Or sitting in somewhere as magnificent as that mm. must be a fantastic place to work. So again, yeah, multifunctional. Come try and do that with a 1980s office building. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're doing the rounds. What's your favourite building, Neil? I'm going to go back to the original answer that I gave you. Because um, I thought about you, 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 you planted something in my head, and I, I really thought about it. And I went, no, my original choice was valid, and I always wanted to have the chance to bring this up. So I'm like, this is by accident. We haven't, we haven't yeah. orchestrated this just so I can bring this back to you. Um, Richard Rogers building in Lloyd's. What? So yeah, you gave that answer, and the reason, <laughs> so, the, the reason so, so the reason why it means something to me is because, as, 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 and it's the same reason I gave you, and you whatever. So my my dad took me there. So he works in insurance. My dad took me there, and this is before doing any background in engineering. So um, and that concept of seeing how stuff works. And it just, I mean, it's just one of these things. I always wanted to go back there because I wanted to see the inside of the um, the escalators. Uh, everything's all inside out. And it's just, as a kid, was fascinating. And it kind of led through this journey to becoming an engineer. And it still sticks with me. And I just walk past it quite frequently. I cycle past it. And, you know, the, 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 the toilet pods on the side. And this, the, 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 there is this concept of I like to feel that with bridges, actually. I think there's something extraordinary. With bridges, you know, I went to university in Bristol and the clips and suspension yeah, yeah. at times that just sat there and thought, just so cool. I mean, it, 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 it is, it, it, it's a kind of a modernist mindset, isn't it, trying to kind of show the function of the building. But, but uh, I mean, the thing with the Lloyds building is that uh, the cutting stainless steel, it's incredibly expensive. <laughs> it's one of the, it might not look it, but it's one of the most expensive build, ways you could actually build a building. Uh, and it's kind of it's it's quite the opposite of of, of kind of modernism actually being very functional and kind of yeah. uh, uh, etc. It's actually quite extravagant. And, oh, I, know, I know that Harry's itching to give his one, so we should just carry on. No, no, yeah, you should. Until... Not, yeah, it's totally fine. I'm fine. Come on, there. Land, landscape architect. Yeah, I'd be trying. I'd be just trying to think of one. What's your side? <laughs> no, um, this is a really weird one, but I'm just trying to think See, of good. what architecture <laughs> means the most to me. Have I put the most thought into throughout my life? It's pillboxes. Uh, it's a okay. bit of a weird boxes. No, no pillboxes, as in the World War Two um, defensive structures that were built all across the UK, and uh, because as a child I used to go and find them and try and get into them, and there were these mysterious places where clearly nefarious things happened, but I never saw them, and they're, they're everywhere, they're everywhere, and they're this kind of reminder, and they got that sort, they, they were never really used for their intended purpose. But they were never removed either. So they're kind of they're a marker of a very specific period in time. I, um, there was a very clear decision. There was a government decision. We have to do something. Something is about to happen. Something that never happened. And so we're going to do this. And this is our response. So that's interesting. All three, three of you have, have picked buildings because of their emotional resonance mm. related to something. Yeah, because I'm obviously very shallow. Oh, I don't. Yeah, the, <laughs> Is not a, is not a shallow decision. I don't think you can get away with that. <laughs> I remember when I stopped working in architecture, people uh, asked me, "Why did you leave architecture?" Because I don't like buildings. <laughs> so there you have it. An abrupt end. <laughs>
we've uh, probably kept you here long enough, so we won't have too much of a longer outro. Thanks for listening. The next podcast should not be so long in the making. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you next time.